I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Kendra Kruger. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, October 20th, 2015. Coming up, we hear more from Carl Safina's new book, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. This time, with a look at Yellowstone wolves and the terrible history behind the captures of killer whales for amusement parks. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Have you ever wondered why when you leave your car in the sun, you get burnt if you touch the car's body, but not if you touch the seats? The two materials are actually the same temperature, and yet when you touch them, they give completely different sensations. The difference is a property called thermal conduction. The metal car body has a much higher conductivity than the fabric, and so it is much more efficient in transmitting its heat to your hand when you touch it. Thermal conduction happens when the energy of molecules, atoms, and electrons in one object collide with and transfer energy to the particles in another object. Even though the property of thermal conductivity is well known and has been extensively studied and applied, so far it has never been given a detailed theoretical description that takes into account the laws of quantum mechanics. But now, researchers at the International School for Advanced Studies in Italy have found a recipe applying fundamental laws of quantum mechanics to describe thermal conductivity. The study, just published in the journal Nature Physics, will allow scientists to simulate this phenomenon numerically in extreme temperature and pressure conditions, say, those existing inside planets that cannot be reproduced in the laboratory. Numerical simulation using these results, likely on superconductors, is the only possibility to study the physics of such extreme conditions. Last year, Boulder's Rights of Nature Film Festival was the first festival of its kind in North America, creating a buzz that resonated around the world and led to many donations to assist endangered animals. Now mark your calendars for this year's festival. It starts the first Thursday of November and goes through that weekend. It will feature the best new films about our healing partnership with nature, including documentaries on permaculture, wild elephants, the sagebrush sea, Thomas Berry, and the complexity of the world's dwindling water supply. The Rights of Nature Film Festival starts Thursday, November 5th, at Boulder's Dairy Center for the Arts. Find out more by going to Boulder County Audubon Society website. And on the science calendar this week, Café Scientifique 2 will host a talk on Thursday night. It'll explore whether people living at altitude at high altitude live longer than those at sea level. Dr. Benjamin Honigman of the University of Colorado School of Medicine will give the talk. It's titled, The Old Man in the Mountain Really Exists. Although the effects of traveling short-term from low to high elevation has been studied thoroughly, much less is known about what happens to people who live at high elevations over many years. Almost one million people in Colorado and millions more worldwide live above 7,000 feet. 
research on individuals in remote countries such as Nepal, Bolivia, or Ethiopia is not only difficult, but it also raises questions about lifestyle, disease, and diet, as well as genetic adaptations acquired over generations. Intrigued? Come to the talk this Thursday, October 22nd, at Brooklyn's at the Pepsi Center in Denver. It starts at 6.30, but you might get there early if you want to mingle and order food. Brooklyn's is located at 901 Aurora Parkway, directly across from the parkway across from Aurora campus. For more info, go to cafesicolorado.org. Yesterday, the landmark Clean Water Act turned 43. Passed in 1972, the legislation disrupted the status quo of its time by declaring that businesses can't dump their waste into water that belongs to the people. President Richard Nixon vetoed the bill, but both houses of Congress met to override his veto. It is one of the United States' first and most influential modern environmental laws, and its bipartisan passage seems like a distant throwback to more harmonious and same times in Washington. I was following me, 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 I was following You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. Last week, we brought you excerpts from an interview with MacArthur Genius Grant Award winner, scientist and naturalist Carl Safina, about his groundbreaking book, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. Last week's excerpts focused on elephants. This week, we bring you more from Beyond Words. This time, Safina takes us to the world of wolves in Yellowstone. Ecologists report that bringing wolves back to Yellowstone has dramatically improved that, that region's health. Their hunting means elk are no longer overpopulating Yellowstone, meaning less starvation among elk during the winter and all year long, less overeating of bushes and trees along the waterways. With a healthier planet system, songbirds are back, and beavers that dam up systems, steams, streams are back, making ponds. That means more fish are back, and on it goes. What's more, it's estimated that the chance to even see wolves brings more than $30 million from tourists into the Wyoming economy. Now, here's How on Earth's Shelley Schlender sharing with us Carl Safina as he talks about wolves. Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel by Carl Safina. Narrated by Carl Safina. Part two, Howls of Wolves. They often lived right out in front of us what seemed like epic lives. Doug Smith, Decade of the Wolf. Into the Pleistocene. From a deep grove of pines on a Pleistocene morning in the original world, a coyote yips an alarm. And when I scope that slope, my view sweeps across snow, sage, the pines, wolves. Nearly a mile away, but clear enough in the telescope, half a dozen big, long-legged, archetypal dogs, primal yet so familiar-looking, are trotting into the valley. Floating down with an easy, unhurried motion, they eat distance at unexpected speed. The wolf in front is gray. Two black wolves follow closely, one limping slightly, another gray, two more dark ones, and two more grays, eight wolves, my first ever. 
The wolves of Yellowstone National Park's Lamar Valley attract human attention as nowhere else. The alpha wolf watcher, Rick McIntyre, follows wolves here every day. I don't mean five days a week or weather permitting. I mean that every day for 15 years so far, every single time the sun said peekaboo, Rick McIntyre has been in the Lamar Valley. No misses, no matter the blizzards of winter nor crowds of summer, no matter anything else in the world. A man in his mid-sixties of angular features, Rick has had his eye on wild wolves for more hours than any human ever has, quite possibly more than any living creature that isn't a wolf. Rick's typed notes run 10,000 single-spaced pages so far. You get to know individuals, and you see their descendants, and you want to keep with it, he sums up, as if it's that simple. It's a never-ending story. Rick can glance through a telescope at a wolf on a ridge a mile away and instantly tell you who it is by name and recite its life. As a career ranger who's worked from Death Valley to Denali, he's seen the best of the parks, and when offered the opportunity to observe wolf reintroduction into Yellowstone seven decades after they were exterminated here, Rick recognized a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. As if you were a historian in 1860 and got the chance to spend every day in the Lincoln White House witnessing history. As Rick sees it, wolves and humans must deal with similar life problems, such as figuring out when to face the risks of leaving home, finding your place in the world. There are endless similarities, he says. He notes, though, one difference between wolves and himself. Certain wolves I've known, they were better at being a wolf than I've been at being a person. This book, in my conception of the book, was going to be a book where I took a break from writing about conservation. And I went to the most protected populations of elephants, wolves, and killer whales that I knew about. And everywhere I went, I found them under mortal pressure from people who were killing them. And that changed their behavior and how they could move around and function in the world. And I could not write an honest book without including some of what people are doing to them. But the book is really about what life is like for them as the creatures who they are. Well, then let's go to wolves. Let's talk about 06. 06 is a wolf that was born in 2006. That's why she got that nickname. And she was the best hunter of all the wolves in Yellowstone. Two, she was the most independent-minded female. She was really the one who was the leader of the pack. And a wolf pack is simply a family, more like our nuclear families than any other animals in the world that I know about. So 06 was an independent career lady. Right. She was an independent career lady among wolves. O6's grandfather was the super wolf, and O6 earned her own reputation as both a superlative hunter and a master tactician. One day, Rick saw 16 members of Molly's pack, this bison-killing pack had already killed other wolves, heading toward the Lamar's den. Wolves who discover a rival pack's den sometimes proceed to kill all the pups, as well as any adults in their way. This day, that's just what was unfolding. On their way up, they disappeared into deep timber. All of a sudden, 17 wolves came running out of the trees, away from the den site. O6 was in front and well ahead at first, 
but all sixteen enemy wolves were chasing her, and they were closing fast. She was racing across an open slope that terminates in a high cliff. She was heading straight for the cliff. I could see that in her panic she'd made a major mistake, Rick remembers. I could see that when she got there she'd realize her mistake and her only choice would be to turn and fight. But at sixteen against one, that was hopeless. We'd watched her whole life, he says, and now we were about to watch her death. But what she knew, that I didn't know, was that there was a tiny gully that ran across that cliff face, and that she could run it all the way down to the valley floor. So she plunged down along that gully, and when the other wolves got to the top of the cliff, they couldn't figure out how she'd gotten down. A fundamental problem remained. All they had to do was follow her scent trail back and they'd discover the den, where the pups were helpless. At that point, one of her adult daughters appeared and did something that I thought was stupid. She just stood, in plain sight. The attacking wolves saw her and charged. She ran east. She was a very fast wolf and easily outdistanced all of them. But in the process, she pulled them far away from the den and pups. By the end of all that chasing, the mollies looked confused, tired, and disorganized. They went into the valley, swam across the river, and didn't return. And those pups that survived that day because their adults decoyed the attackers are some of the yearlings we're now waiting for. 06 earned a reputation as the best hunter in Yellowstone. One day, a 500-pound elk and her half-grown youngster emerged from the trees. A hundred yards behind them, walking casually, came 06. The elk picked up her pace. Her objective, get to the river and stand in water deep enough that a wolf would float before it reached them. The elk knew what she needed to do, and she accomplished that goal. O6 decided she'd take a number and wait. She had once kept an elk in the water for three days, then eventually killed it. She lay down on the bank. The two elk split up, mother downstream, young one upstream. As the increasingly vulnerable young one reached a shallower stretch, the tension mounted. And in seconds, Doug says, O6 was certainly all over the mother elk. While the humans had focused on the more vulnerable youngster, O6 had figured the situation differently. If she attacked the smaller one, she'd be trying to kill the youngster with a holding bite while the horse-sized mother came on in full fury with sharp hooves flying. What happened? O6 couldn't grab the mother elk in the water, so from the land she goaded the elk into charging. Sure enough, the elk rushed the bank, kicking furiously with her forelegs. O6 watched for her opening, then leapt up through the flailing legs and seized the elk by the throat. They both tumbled down the bank, falling into the water. O6's head was underwater, so she immediately let go of her bite and used her whole body to hold the elk's head underwater. We saw her demonstrate total knowledge of her prey in a way I've seen no other wolf do, Doug tells me. And it was the quickest killing of an elk that I have ever seen. But now O6 had a dead elk in deep water. She tried dragging it out and couldn't, so she planned another strategy. She pulled the elk into deeper water, floated it downstream to a bit of beach, and pulled it up there. She ate some, then lay down to rest on the bank. She was seen and photographed by millions of people who paid uh, collectively millions of dollars to come into the park, in some cases hire guides, uh, stay at lodges, all that kind of stuff. 
to see these wolves. And then one day in the fall of 2012, they went from being fully protected animals on the U.S. Endangered Species Act to being subject to a complete open season with no limits in the state of Wyoming. Wyoming started killing lots of wolves outside Yellowstone National Park. Uh, as winter was coming on, most of the prey leaves Yellowstone because Yellowstone is too high and too brutal in winter for most of the deer and most of the elk. They go down lower. These wolves started to follow them. So they wandered outside this imaginary line in the woods. And um, very shortly, 06 was killed. She had an unbelievable ability to sense when things weren't right in the pack, says Lori Lyman, diehard wolf watcher and wolf news compiler for Yellowstone Reports. She is, of course, talking about the wolf whose birth year became her name, the famous 06, mother of the precocious, now banished 820, an unwitting, unwilling martyr. She was the alpha female who most made her own rules in life, chimes in Doug McLaughlin, who never misses an opportunity to extol 06. She did things her way, he says, and did them spectacularly well. The more you watched her, the more you admired her. So, big loss, really sad, reflects Lori. It's only been a few months, and the pain still shows on their faces, and in self-recrimination, Lori confesses, in a way we loved her to death, in the park, she'd so often seen so many people, so outside the park, she wasn't particularly worried. You're tuned to How on Earth. I'm Kendra Kruger. Today we're bringing you more from Beyond Words by Carl Safina. In his book, Safina explains that the death of wolves such as O6 has led some protections, led to some protections for them to be reinstated outside of Yellowstone National Park. But the protections vary from state to state, and their future as a species remains precarious. Now let's turn to another creature whose future is at risk. It's killer whales. Last week, we brought you an account from the book, Beyond Words, about how scientists report that killer whales have occasionally saved them from danger out at sea, in a way that hints that whales may have some form of mental telepathy with humans. Today, we bring you another excerpt about killer whales. This time, it's about why Carl Safina believes it's time to stop breeding or capturing killer whales for exhibit at marine worlds. Here's Carl Safina talking with How on Earth's Shelley Slender. You first met killer whales yourself at a sea world. Well, it wasn't a sea world. I first met killer whales in one of the sequarium type of places in Canada, and this was in the late 70s. At that point, you describe in your book Beyond Words that you were entranced by how intelligent the killer whale was about its relationship with its handler, and it didn't occur to you that there was a tragedy behind that. It never occurred to me to ask how the whale got there. And actually, most people at the time didn't know anything about their family groupings or their social structure or anything like that. I just thought, you know, they netted a killer whale and they put it in a tank and they treated it nicely and it looked like it was getting along just fine. They're called killer whales, right? And up until that time, people thought that they were mindless, ruthless killers. And there it was, playing and interacting with this human being and jumping out of the water and was completely awe-inspiring and magnificent. 
Ken is telling me that during the 1970s, a mother and son who'd been captured and held in a large net pen had both refused food for three weeks. Their captors didn't even realize that they were mammal eaters, transients whose normal prey is seals, sea lions, dolphins, and whales. The captors were trying to feed them herring. The whales must have gotten very hungry. They were wasting away, Ken says. They were moved to nearby sea land. When they arrived, a trained whale named Haida, who was from a fish-eating resident pod, either J or L pod, and had been brought into captivity in 1968, dove down to inspect them along the netting that separated them. Haida swam back to a trainer who'd been scratching him, took a herring, and pushed it through the netting for the new whales. Sharing food with strangers, we thought only humans do that. Because free-living residents and transients never mingle, Haida's gesture becomes, in human terms, transcendent. At first, the newcomers did not take the fish. Haida pressed a fish against one of the other's mouth and repeated this several times with both newcomers. The new whales soon began eating. If a human did such a thing, the word applied would be mercy, transcendent mercy. Let us be at least generous enough not to deprive so generous a whale of two mere words. Caught with those two had been three other transients who were still in the net pen in the bay where they'd been captured. By the time they'd not eaten for 75 days, their bodies had shrunk over their rib cages, a state of emaciation unheard of for a whale. One of the whales started slowly swimming, bumping into things as if in delirium. Then, at five in the afternoon, she charged the net full force, punching through heavy polypropylene netting up to her dorsal fin. Stuck, exhausted, starved, she went backward out of the net, opening her mouth to allow air bubbles to escape and sank dead. It was almost as if the failure of that final desperate dash took what remained of her will to live and she'd intentionally let life go. Immediately after that whale died, one of the other whales, dubbed Charlie Chin, looked over at the human attendants. He grabbed the net and started yanking on it. Was he asking for help, for release? The human started hitting him on the head, but he hung on for a while, then he let go. On day 78, Charlie Chin took a salmon from an attendant's hand and, starving, swam with it to his surviving comrade. The two of them vocalized. He dropped the salmon right in front of her nose. She grabbed it by the tail. He took hold of the head. With each whale holding one end of the fish, they made one circuit of the pool, vocalizing back and forth. Then they pulled the fish apart. Each whale ate half. A few minutes later, he got another fish and again presented it. She ate it whole. He went and got another for himself. Soon they were each eating 450 pounds of fish daily, and soon, too, they were sold to a Texas aquarium. But before Sealand shipped them out, someone one night weighed down a section of the netting. The whales left. Though the perpetrator was never caught, I and lots of other people would like to thank them. It says much about us that people could catch and sell the whales into captivity and get wealthy, and that people could simply liberate the whales and get arrested. As Bob Dylan observed, steal a little and they throw you in jail.
steal a lot, and they make you king. That's Carl Safina from his new book, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. Thanks to Shelley Schlender for producing that report, and thanks to many of you who pledged during our drive last week. And uh, many of you got Carl Safina's book. In fact, there are no more left, but there are many more books we have for those who would like to still pledge. Uh, many more books on science and the environment and tributes to science. So call now at 303-449-4885. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by Shelley Schlender, along with myself and my co-host, Kendra Kruger, who also engineered. And thanks to Shelley Schlender and Joel Parker for their feature and headline contributions. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from St. Sens, Carlos Nakai, and Fleet Foxes. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Kendra Kruger. And I'm Susan Moran.